1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. So this is one of those classic podcasts that I love to have. My guests today are Charlie Weems Dunn and Will Fortescue. Both of them are non-hunters. They wouldn't classify themselves as anti-hunters, but pro-conservation. They both operate in the photographic ecotourism space in Kenya, specifically in Amboseli. Uh, Will is a phenomenal, phenomenal photographer. Check out or Google Will Fortescue and you'll see his photography. Charlie is the executive director of a private foundation here in the States that supports habitat and biodiversity um, projects in, in Africa, specifically in, in Kenya, but he works all over Africa. And their projects specifically, as I just said, are meant to stem the loss of biodiversity and habitat, so they work with communities. Well, this conversation came about because of the controversy around these two elephants in Tanzania. Same situation happened last April in terms of the elephant that came out of Botswana. And so I'm always up to having conversations, good, intellectual, stimulating, no screaming match kind of conversations with people that just don't look at the world the way that most hunters look at the world. I think it's important to have these kinds of dialogues. I think it's important to sometimes just sit back and listen. And so you know that about us. And so this conversation is that in a nutshell, essentially. So enjoy it, think about it, question it, and form your own opinions. If you like it, obviously share the podcast around. Love for you to do that. Uh, Give us a review on the podcast and leave us a rating, whether it's on Apple or Spotify. It all helps us move up the algorithm of podcasts and up the chain and charts to make it more visible to everyone. So enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name is. (laughs) Does my hair look okay? My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. So there's got to be some sort of joke um, about three colonialists getting on a podcast together. Um, What a lovely start. (laughs) 
Um, but three accents, everyone's going to be like, holy smokes, Robert, you're getting accents constantly now. You know, you just, it can't be just be yours. You need to have, and I think both of your accents are better than mine. I think people are going to, oh man, Robbie, you need to start working on your British accent a little bit, right? You've got the, you've, you've got the upper hand because South Africa, of course, won the uh, Rugby World Cup. So that's a bit of a, a bit of a trump card you could play. Yeah, we certainly can. Um, I lost a lot of years in my life watching the three rugby games, and um, I added a lot of gray hairs to the beard and to the to the the scalp uh, during that rugby game. Um, but yeah, I you know what we're about to do here is what I think we've become known for is you know Blood Origins prides itself in the fact that we listen. We pride ourselves in the fact that we, we want to hear all sides of the picture. We don't believe, and you can hear me, I say this a lot, I don't think hunting is the panacea for wildlife conservation. I think it's a great tool in the toolbox. And so whenever uh, controversial topics come up and people have strong opinions in controversial topics, we like to have those conversations. We like to hear from people. And um, what I want to do to start with, instead of just like jumping right in, because we all can, I want to just set the tone. I want to set the context here. And I want to introduce you guys. Um, after our interactions through social media, I've gotten to know both of you through a little bit of stalking. Um, I apologize, Google stalking and Instagram stalking, but you probably did the same for me and Blood Origins. Um, and I'm a big fan of both of you. And I hope that after this podcast, we can stay in touch and we can continue conversations and we can c continue distributing information back and forth. Um, so let me start with you, Charlie, because you actually started this all off. And then um, I saw Will's post and then I did the same thing with Will. Um, but Charlie Weems done. Welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Thank you so much, Robbie. Happy to be here. Uh, Charlie, where are you in the world? You don't sound like you're American, but you are in America. I am indeed. Yes. No, I'm, um, I'm British. Uh, I grew up in, in London, um, but uh, I've been living in the United States for the better part of uh, a decade or more than a decade now, a couple of decades. Um, so, Same uh, here. When did you arrive? Uh, I arrived for college in 2008, 2007, 2008. So it's been a while, been a while in the US. Yeah, I arrived in 2003 to do a PhD in Mississippi. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. One of the Charlie, what do you do as a living? So um, I um, am the, uh, the, essentially the, the head of a private wildlife conservation foundation that we run. Um, and our focus uh, is essentially on uh, landscape preservation. Um, we focus on stemming the tide of biodiversity loss and habitat loss, um, primarily in Africa, um, with a deep focus on uh, making uh, these landscapes work for both uh, wildlife, but also critically the local communities in these areas. So providing them with um, viable, sustainable economies, um, while also protecting the critical, um, critical environment um, that, that, that these areas still hold. And Africa is incredibly fortunate to have so much uh, or their, you know, amazing landscapes uh, and habitats that are still intact. Having said that, there's definitely a lot of pressure 
um, on these landscapes and it's continuing to increase. Um, and so um, our foundation is focused on um, ensuring that protection um, that works for both the landscape and also for the people that live in these landscapes um, uh, is, uh, is, is met. And we support organizations um, that, uh, that focus on that. Are you operating throughout Africa or you specifically target um, a certain country? And do you, are, there, are you executing grants to organizations that then implement the work? That's correct. So um, we, we do operate throughout Africa. Um, the, the size of the organizations we support varies. So it varies from ones that are a little larger, but not massive, um, that focus Africa-wide. Um, and uh, those that are more regionalized and focus on a specific country um, and specific uh, activities within that country. Um, but all are primarily community-focused. Um, all are very high-impact organizations um, that work in a very uh, transparent and uh, really very efficient manner without massive bureaucracies, um, which, is, which is very effective for getting money to uh, the source um, for both, you know, conservation activities, but also community activities. Um, and we give grants to organizations, yeah. So in the future, there may be potential for us to have more of a cooperative engagement, but we very much understand that we are not the experts. Um, yeah. We might know a bit about conservation from our years working as a foundation, but ultimately the real experts are those who are on the ground doing the operations, uh, who have the requisite experience, have the knowledge, are the locals. Um, and so we rely on them, of course, for, for a lot of what goes on and, and what we support. Did you start the foundation, Charlie, or are you just now running the foundation? I started the foundation. Awesome. Awesome. Fantastic. Fantastic. Will Fortescue, did I get Fortescue right? You did, Robbie. Fantastic. Uh, you're not in America. You are, you are still in the homeland. I'm still in the homeland, yeah, I, I'm sticking it out. Um, who knows uh, if that'll change? Yes, I, I'm based up in, uh, up in North London, but have been for the last, well, for a while now, actually. Um, but my background, uh, probably a bit more simplistic than Charlie's, um, I'm just a straight-up wildlife photographer. I also um, run a small... No, 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 you're not just a straight-up wildlife photographer. Everyone needs to stop the podcast right now and Google Will Fortescue because holy smokes, dude. Like... Your images have blown me away like that. It's, it's crazy. You're, you've got a book out, right, that has a, a compilation of all your photos? I do indeed, yeah. We, we bought that out of, uh, just over a year ago now, um, which is it's about 110 photos from probably three or four years worth of work, um, all focused predominantly around East Africa, which has kind of been my, um, my home and where I kind of trained as a, as a photographer and as a photo guide. Um, but we now have started kind of moving up into, we do a bit of work in the Arctic with our safari company. We've just started doing a bit of stuff in Asia as well. Um, and trying to, um, look for stuff that's a little bit different. Um, we're yeah. not trying to just do the kind of the classic, um, Maselli Masai Mara stuff as popular as it is. We're trying to do, you know, we're looking at places like Mongolia, um, trying to get a little bit more out there, um, and offer something a bit different. So do you offer people to go, you, do you take people on photographic safaris? Is that a part of the business model? Yeah, very much so. So we're, we're seeing it get more and more popular. We actually started up um, mid-pandemic 
um, we thought the the best company to start in a, in a wealth of travel bands was a travel company. Um, well, we started a nonprofit in the in the in the belly of the of a pandemic. So yeah, but I, I, there's logic in that, and the people are at home, and that you know those that were able to, there was kind of people were saving a little bit of cash, not going out as much, so there was a bit more, a bit <laughs> more kind of generosity flying around. What we were doing was getting on aeroplanes. Um, right. We right. we kind of started it and, and kept it pretty low key for a while, but but kind of put all the building blocks in sort of 2020, 2021, and, and starting to reap the rewards of that now. Um, but no, so we um, we're kind of three years into it now. What we primarily focus on is taking group trips. So we'll take anything up to six or ten tourists in one go, and we will go. Um, we have the charter uh, yachts up in the Arctic and go looking for polar bears, or it's um, we've just come back from a trip in Zambia. My business partner's currently in India looking for tigers. So half of what we do is very much very keen amateur photographers. They come along with with their gear and they want to but they want to improve as photographers. And then the other half of what we do is we we kind of operate as a more traditional bespoke booking company as well. So people will come to us and go, ah, oh, either I want to go to Kenya or I want to go to Tanzania or I want to see elephants, I want to see leopards or whatever it is they want to see. And we we kind of pair up the, the trip with the person. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, dude, India is India is just a is a crazy, crazy place. That I'm in a couple of WhatsApp groups on human wildlife conflict in India and the videos that I get sent are just like mind boggling. Um, so that's probably a podcast in itself, I think. Oh, yeah, for sure. And the other thing is I, I had this, again, it's all, you know, this world lives on, you know, perceptions, nine-tenths of reality is perception. And I said to this, my contact in India, I was like, man, you know, I'd love to come to India and, and you know, potentially see a tiger. Like, that's, you know, super rare. And it's like, no, you'd be unlucky not to see two. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, it's just. You know, again, if you don't know the system, you don't know what's going on. Um, it's a success India's story. It's fascinating. Success. It is a success story, hundred percent. Because a national symbol, and they've done a they've done a very good job in India of of bringing back tigers uh, from low numbers. And of course, they got better at counting as well the the censuses. But they've done a very good job um, because it's so wrapped up in in pride of pride of the country. But as you say, I mean, you know, human human wildlife conflict yeah. is. Is quite severe, and they manage it quite well given all of the complexities in India. Um, and I know they do a good job there, uh, so it, it's interesting to see. But it's yeah, it's uh, it's got some like everywhere nowadays. It's got uh, it's got a lot of things to, on its plate. Well, a booming human population next to a wildlife population that's also doing very very well. You know, it, it's almost like inevitable that you're going to have conflict, right? And Africa, unfortunately, is is what's knocking on everyone on the next on the doorstep, essentially, right? Two and a half billion people in Africa predicted to be, I don't know, what's the number? Five billion by twenty fifty? Six billion? Okay. Something crazy. And um the pressure that's being put on habitats in Africa is it, it's a, it's crazy. It is, but I think that's what we're, you know, slightly here to talk about as well, is is the kind of ways that uh being put in to kind of protect that space, you know, is what, what Charlie's foundation does so well. Um, and I know we're going to kind of dig into it a bit more and we're all very keen to, to talk about it. And I know that, you know, you've got your, your followers, um, will kind of see one side we have got some followers, we'll see another. And then there's, a, I think there's a huge kind of mid ground at the moment that are still discerning the difference between legal hunting, illegal poaching, human wildlife conflict, and all of those things. Um, and I think that 
that is the conversation that I'm looking forward to having with you guys is kind of where where all of these very blurred lines cross over. Um, and actually, I know that we're not on dissimilar pages for a lot of the conversation. Oh, no, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So let me, uh, I want to, again, all of this preamble is, is good conversation to set context to make sure that everyone understands your position, where you sit. Um, I think everyone knows where we sit. Um, into, and, I, and I can reiterate it for everyone. Um, so Charlie, let me, I'm going to ask a simple question to both of you. Um, Based, but I know the answer, but I'm just setting this in the tone. Um, would you consider yourselves anti-hunting? I'll just leave it at that. Would you guys consider yourselves anti-hunters? Um, I suppose I'll go first. I have a real problem with the binary, in a more broader sense, the binary way that life has become. In that people are being put into boxes and there's a very, there's tribal identities assigned to a number of different sort of sectors of society. I think that's not at all a good thing. I, I think, you know, in general, I think people can and should have nuanced views on all manner of topics. And so I'd asked, answer the, I'd answer your question with saying that I'm neither a pro hunting person or an anti hunting person. I think I take a, I think I personally take a very pragmatic view with regard to these things because we've had enough conversations with people to understand that hunting, ethical hunting has a very important role in protecting landscapes um, in Africa. I mean, I can only talk about Africa because that's right, what right. I know from, right, from, right. Our, from our work. And... So to say that, that I'm anti is not true because of that. And, I, and I'm aware of that. And there are plenty of places that um, there is no infrastructure set up as of yet to support either ecotourism, tourism, or other vehicles, conservation vehicles um, in certain areas, um, even though that may happen at, at some point. Um, and there are many areas that are coming out of periods where the only reason why those areas are still wild is because of support from uh, being a hunting concession. Otherwise, they could well have been turned over into uh, development. Uh, they could have been developed um, and no longer be wild or wilderness areas. So my answer is, um, obviously, I'm a conservate. We're a conservation foundation. So we always have to look for our ultimate goal is to ensure the preservation and protection of as much wilderness as we can. Uh, species, if given space to roam, will always be able to regenerate. It's the beauty of life. Um, you know, if landscapes are preserved, species within those landscapes will proliferate. Um, losing the land is the biggest 100%. worry that we have as a foundation that I focus on that we support groups that try and stop that. And so for, from our perspective, that is sacrosanct. And so there has to be a level of pragmatism when it comes to how you protect this, this land. Mm -hmm. Even though personally I might have views on, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a hunter. Um, I don't hunt. Um, having said that, um, I, I can understand the people that do hunt ethically. Um, and I can understand the, the draw for it. And I can also understand that there are benefits in conservation for, uh, hunt, for hunting concessions. Yeah. So that would be my view. What yeah, I well am stated. anti 
Um, and I suppose I should say, like, you know, why are we having this conversation? Um, I think there is a level of, there is blurred, as you said, there are blurred lines. Um, unethical, uh, unethical behavior is always going to be an interesting one because it's a difficult one to police. Um, it's one of those things that essentially you could say that there could be unethical behavior in any single thing. There's unethical behavior in tourism as well. Um, and so, uh, you know, but I, I think, so there has to be, I, I, I say, I'm always anti unethical behavior, um, and unethical, uh, and unregulated, uh, methods of doing anything and hunting being one of those. Mm -hmm. Very well said. Anti. Yeah. Yeah. Very well said. Well, I don't think you're very far from that, right? No, I'm not. And I can't. I can't say it much better than Charlie. Um, I'm sure. I'm sure somebody would love to hear me come on and go. I'm violently against it. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I'm, I'm on the same page as Charlie in that I wish, I wish it wasn't a case of having to be universally for or against it. Um, it is a position we find ourselves in too often now. And you know, we we've, we've all put different posts up recently on Instagram talking about. This like the, the specific scenario we're going to come on to of these of these two super tuskers, um, and the kind of the feedback and the comments I've had on it have stretched all the way from like give the animals the guns and let them go the hunters through to boycott Tanzania. Um, one thing I'm also conscious of, and your your joke slightly touched on it at the start, is that I I am British and that it's of no, you know, my opinion is of no concern to Tanzania how they manage their natural resources, but mm -hmm. at the same time. I think there needs to be a, an admission that these animals are are icons. There are very few of them left, um, and actually, it is of it is of global interest what happens to these animals. Um, and so that's why I do feel like we we do have a, a reason to kind of come on and, and talk to you today. Um, but no, I would I would love that if I'm brutally honest, I would love a world to exist where we didn't need to potentially utilize hunting as a as a quote conservation tool um in my in my real heart but at the same sure, time sure. we are talking about you know a continent that is absolutely vast what is the right answer in Amboseli in southern kenya is not the same as the answer in northern tanzania and i think that's that's the big clash here um is that while i'm probably still working out exactly how i feel about it all there is there is not a unless you're a certain kind of person i don't think you can be completely pro or completely against i think most of us understand that there is a there is a serious mid-ground in, in such a kind of heated topic. Yeah, I you know, the way that I couch it is this, all three of us are pro-wildlife conservation. And at the end of the day, there's various tools to, to end, to meet that goal. Um, I did a podcast with, so the Zimbabwe Professional Guides Association is, a, is essentially that it's hunters and guides that occupy the same, they do the same licensing, they do everything the same. And I had both a consumptive and a non-consumptive guide on there, a PH, a professional hunter, and then a professional guide. And the professional hunter said, there, there shouldn't be a, a, it should be nuanced, to your point, Charlie. And it, it's not black and white. Consumptive and non-consumptive tourism, it done in the right way, done responsibly, done in a regulatory, regulated fashion, done ethically, are all striving towards the same purpose which is conserving wildlife, sustaining habitats, and ensuring that those things are around for my kids, my grandkids, 
not Charlie's kids, um, but uh, you know what I'm saying, in the future. And that's and the local communities benefit around these areas because what this wildlife and this land has no future because people will not see a benefit in it. 100%. Totally, totally, totally get it. Um, so the, the topic that brought us all together were the two elephants. Not many details. I don't have any details on the elephants themselves. We just know that two big elephants got shot on the border in Tanzania in a wildlife management area called Et I think it's called Etumet or something. I don't know if I'm saying it correctly or not. Um, that borders right up against the Kenyan border and is, you know, 50 to 100 kilometers. Is that right? You guys know it better than I do from Amboseli. It's not far at all. No, I mean, it's, you're, you're talking about it. it. It is literally across the border. Um, so it's, it's, it's really not far at all. So it, it, again, no one knows apart from the guys that were there kind of who these elephants were. Um, there, there was no evidence left behind to kind of identify them. Um, but I, I would have thought with, with pretty, pretty clear certainty, they probably kind of straddle the borders elephants between Kenya where, where hunting is, is not legal and Tanzania. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so obviously a lot of emotion, a lot of, uh, vitriol, <laughs> um, a lot of on both sides of the coin, um, around this topic. And so. We were, we were in some comments back and forth on Instagram, and as we've done before, as we did last year on the big Tusker that got killed out of Botswana, I wanted to have conversations with people that um, around this topic, both that um, actually this time around, we're not actually talking to anyone from a pro hunting perspective, just talking to you guys, and we did a podcast with a head warden out of Baluli, out of Kruger National Park, to talk about elephants and communities and stuff like that as well. Well, it's interesting. I would be, I'd be very interested. I mean, I can't imagine that there would be many serious hunters that would be able to defend this particular instance. And I think this is what brought me to the table of the commentary mm. on this post because, well, this incident, because reports are that one of the elephants was, and again, the veracity of reports is something I can't. Right. I don't think anyone is 100% settled, but there, is a, there are reports that one of the elephants in one instance was chased into the hunting area by a helicopter, which is not very sporting. No, of course not. I think every hunter in that regard would say, would say absolutely what the hell's going on. Absolutely. And then the carcasses of both elephants were subsequently burnt, which is also something that is very troublesome because I know that one of the major hunting arguments is that when you hunt a, a species, uh, especially a large species, one of the big benefits to the community of that hunt is the meat from the animal. And so if one of these animals has been essentially baited into the area and or pushed into the area, and then both animals' carcasses were burnt, there's no way that this is an ethical hunt this seems extraordinarily unethical. And I think that's where I had a problem. And I think mm. it raises questions about how do you police accountability um, mm. in a consumptive and competitive industry? And actually, I'm not just talking about hunting there. When I talk about consumptive and competitive, you could also say tourism is the same. 100%. Yeah, how do you yeah, yeah. police uh, good wildlife 
uh, an ethical practice, uh, good wildlife management and ethical practices uh, there. And, and there have been very obvious examples of where that has been a problem. Yeah. So I think that's where I come to the table and, and I say, this seems like a very, very bad example. And in many ways, I would expect, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I would expect many hunters would be looking at this and saying, this is not good for, for us and for our sport. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's going on here? So the, the helicopter, I would totally agree. The, the problem is it's an, we have an if to it, right? We don't know. We, we have one article written by Africa Geographic saying that it was chased in. Nobody's seen footage. Nobody's seen anything. So we're almost, you know, everyone's at a stalemate there because I can't say it didn't happen. Nobody can prove that it actually happened. If, and, but I will say this to, to your point. If, if it was true, that's, that's unacceptable, right, from an ethical perspective. Interestingly enough, when I saw the burning of the carcasses, I was also just like, oh, my God, this is not good. It's not good. But when I researched it more and I talked to more people operating that area, there's a distinct reason why they burnt them. Here's the reason. Because this is northern Maasai land, the Maasai people do not eat elephant. So they can't donate the meat. They can't give the meat away. Also, the Maasai people are cattle people. And so, again, here's a big if. I'm not saying it would have happened. But here's a big if. Those carcasses would attract predators, lions, leopards, hyenas, and we have a perfect opportunity to poison the carcass to get rid of those predators in that community land because that intimate wildlife management there is a community block. It raises, so, it's interesting. raises an interesting question, but then the question you have to ask, and I'm, I'm not saying that I know the answer to this question is, in that case, what, is hunting in that particular area a good conservation practice? Because it seems like if, it, if, it, if, it, if you remove that big benefit and you even create some external or potential externalities in it could create community conflict even, then it seems like even more of a sort of shaky question of whether trophy hunting should be taking place in that particular yeah. region. Yeah. yeah, it is a good question. One of, I asked a guy who works on the sort of regulatory policy side of things what he knew about this area. And what he said was this community, this Etimate community, actually is one of the, the biggest, how did he couch it? Like highest grossing communities when it comes to revenue being generated in that community from hunting across Tanzania because it's a community block. Now, you know, would something else replace it in that block? because of the, the, the closeness to Amboseli, I don't know. I don't know. But hunting seems to be doing very, very well for that community specifically in terms of revenue and whatnot. Now, granted, would it be a better use of the animal if it, the meat could be donated? 100%. And that happens, you know, in vast majority of, of the rest of Africa. Um, yeah, just the, the, the imagery of the elephants being burnt is not a good image, but there's a reason for it, unfortunately. Yeah, the reason's shaky, though, um, and the reason might not have particularly good foundations um, 
especially when you say, as you say, I mean, land use there is something that, and a good example, and, and this is quite a, a contentious example, but there was fairly successful conservation tourism that was occurring in a, a part of Tanzania called Loliondo that was then acquired for a hunting concession. And I don't want to get into that because it does have a lot of very deep, and, and again, as Will stated, and I'm very, I'm very much on the same page here, far from me with the minimal experience I have to, to question and state what Tanzania should do about its land and its area, yeah. and it's ultimately for Tanzanians to decide. Yeah, their, yeah, yeah. But it does raise this issue. Um, I mean, I understand in, in many parts of Africa, uh, especially parts of Africa where there has been prior conflict and, and conservation for many years was completely... Was, was difficult, but, but not so much conservation, but tourism in, for many years was, a, was, was simply not there because of conflict. Um, and mm -hmm. as a result, there was a reliance, and there still is in some areas, in many areas, uh, especially in Southern Africa, a reliance on hunting um, as a way to keep some of those landscapes that for many years were closed off due to civil wars, due to conflicts. But I think in, in, yeah, it's, this particular example is quite a tricky one. Um, in terms of vacation. Well, talk to, talk, tell me a little bit about Amboseli itself from a photographics perspective. And I, I know that there are some big elephants walking around and whatnot. Are, are, from your, do people say, hey, I want to go see X elephant, Y elephant, or is it just a matter of when you go there, there's a good chance, a greater chance of you coming across from a photographics perspective to these big, these big tuskers? Yeah, so I mean, there's there's two sides of that, and it and it kind of loops back to what we've just been talking about. So yeah, firstly, yes. So we we get we get guests and clients all the time that will go. I I would like to see and photograph Craig, for instance. So they will they will pack their bags and come to Kenya purely to see Craig. Um, he's probably the the poster boy now for yep. Super Tuskers. It used to be Tim, um, and said a few years ago. Now it's Craig. Um, no offense to Craig's, but the naming committee on, on these things sometimes sometimes needs to be addressed. You see these, these beautiful super tuskers, and sometimes the names are not always what you would, would naturally assume. Um, there's been Ulysses and Tolstoy's as well, which feels a lot more appropriate. Um, but very much so. And they, these photographers, on the whole, they do not mind the weather. They don't mind the scenery. Um, you know, Amboseli itself, um, and I, I don't want to upset too many, but it is, not, it is not the most beautiful place to go on safari. Yeah. Uh, if I was if I was picking, how long place. have you been in Amboseli, Will? Um, I've been going there probably two times a year, three times a year for the last three or four years now. Um, okay. so have you seen changes in Amboseli over that time? Um, so I'm predominantly going there at kind of the peak of the dry season, um, okay. Okay. and the reason for that is so Amboseli is famous. It's got the Amboseli Lake bed, um, and as as we hit kind of peak dry season, these elephants are coming across these lake bed morning and evening, coming into the park to get water and then leaving the park in the evening um and so you can wait out on this lake bed you can lie under the car you can get these amazing kind of low angle shots of these elephants people love it it's, it's an awesome experience <laughs> um and so when i'm there you are hitting kind of so between july and october you're getting kind of single digits in terms of millimeters of rain um and so people there will, will freely admit that the big problem now is becoming um, where the Maasai will graze their cattle. Um, and that has been a kind of the big uh, notes in the last few years. The droughts there have been 
have been really severe and you guys will know what a what a drought can can do to a community 100%. Um, you know the last couple of years there's been there's been pretty staggering facts and figures coming out of the elephants and the cattle that have been dying in this drought among other species um so yeah so we firstly i've I mean, I first started going there as as kind of COVID travel restrictions were, were easing off, so it was was pretty empty, and it it, it does now get busy. But it's uh, I would say it's a kind of two or three day destination for most people. They kind of come in, they see it, they see Kili, they see the, these huge, huge elephant herds. You know, sometimes, especially in the wet season, you can get herds of 110, 120 elephants walking across the plains. Um, so we are very much getting people going there purely for photography to photograph specific animals, um, and I would say with kind of relative certainty that if you took away these icons, if you took away your Craigs, your Tims, your Tolstoys, your Ulysses, then the the area would, would be seriously affected in terms of the numbers of tourists going there. So, I don't know if you watched my video, I think you probably did, on, the YouTube, on YouTube about this. Um, I think one of the things that I, I want to point out, and I think it's important for people to realize, is that ecotourism and hunting on are, work very, very, very well together. They work in harmony across a lot of places in Africa. I just stood uh, 16 days in Botswana last June, and it was unbelievable to see. There are places that hunting shouldn't happen in the Delta. Um, and you're even seeing it in certain places like NG41 in Mababi. Have you been to Botswana, Charlie or Will? Yep. I have. I have, yeah. Okay, Will. I'm going to let you in on a secret. The next Masai Mara is a place called Mababi. Okay. It's, so what's happened is um, through tectonic activity, one of the river courses, the Gwai, uh, that never ran, it was a dust bowl back in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, the Mababi Depression, is now has the Gwai River runs permanently through it. And then in the wet, it floods out this huge wetland ecosystem. It probably has today one of the largest uh, congregations of buffalo in Africa. You're talking about three, four, five thousand in uh, in like the June, July timeframe. I think we were there in June. Herds of like 500 sesame. It's unbelievable. Massive lions. It's brilliant. And so what's happened is that NG41 used to be a complete hunting block. But the community has realized that, oh my God, we've got this, this thing now that is just unbelievable. And so the block has been split. The block has been split to say, here is a block that is ecotourism only. Here's a block that's a mixed block. And then here's a hunting only block. So it's like Cylinder. It seems like it's a very similar evolution to Cylinder where the spillway ran again and yep. it's become, again, you know, a, a conservation block of, of a great renown. Yeah, 100%. But the ecotourism value around Mababi is like 20 to 30 kilometers in. That's it, right? Nobody, you, once you get past that 20, 20 kilometer radius, it's just literally raisin bush for 100 kilometers and the odd ostrich, Stiernbach, and then Elephant after elephant after elephant after elephant, just hundreds of elephants. Um, and I think in that scenario, and to come back, sort of bringing it full circle here, if that Mababi had, has a Tim, has a Craig, has a Tolstoy, and this happens in Africa already, um, a lot of people don't realize it, but the, 
they have a little agreement. And they say, hey, this animal right here, from an ecotourism perspective, is super, super valuable. It is not to be touched from a hunting perspective. And so there, there are harmonies here. That's not to say all elephants are off, off the table. It's just here are these three or four that are big, iconic elephants. And I think from a quota perspective, like my Bobby, I don't, I don't think they get so granular in terms of how many elephants are in my Bobby. But I think it's 20,000 or 25,000. There's only a quarter of five elephants in my Bobby. I don't know what the quota is in Etimet, um, but it's probably very, very, very small too. Yeah. Different things work in different places. I mean, a similar type of paradigm exists in Mana Pools and its surrounding areas in Zimbabwe, yep. where there are a number of fairly renowned elephants that um, aren't. It's a really interesting question because then I've heard. Could you imagine we had asked the question before Cecil happened? Well, Again, and I know you're going to, I think I heard that you were going to speak to at some point on the podcast, Dr. Craig Packer, in which case, um, or, you know, and he, he, he's a, uh, a lion. Um, oh, I'd love to get Packer on the podcast. Yeah. I mean, he, he's a lot, he knows far more about lions. So we can go into a little bit about lions, but I think with Mana, I've heard a number of things. I mean, I think that there has been a, an equilibrium that has existed so far, whereby some of these more renowned elephants that are known for which is a unique behavior in mana pools, going up on their back uh, legs um, and, and reaching for the albino. Stretching up, yep, yeah. yep, yep. They, you know, and, and they do, so in the wet season, they do end up moving out of the core area of mana pools into some areas where hunting is allowed. And thus far, there has been a sort of paradigm of not, of not uh, hunting them. Having said that, I'm not entirely sure whether that's due to benevolence or whether it's because they have collars on. And as a result, tracking who did that would be, if, if one of them were to be killed, it would cause a massive outcry, which it doesn't really matter what the reason is. If people feel that way, that's good in some ways too, because they recognize that it would be damaging to do that for everyone, right? For even for people who are doing, you know, for the hunting. Um, I think with, um, so I think that, that there is a, an example of that paradigm working. I think that it's what comes back to what Will said earlier. Each area seems to be very different. And I think enforcement is going to be something that is really a critical question here. Like, how do you enforce ethical laws around what can be hunted, what can't be hunted? You know, how can you make, who's going to make the delineation as to value of, of a specific, I mean, we can all agree that, and, and there are very clear uh, uh, figures that show that the Amboseli population of Super Tuscas is extraordinarily valuable, as we'll mention, for tourism uh, in Amboseli. Um, it's just a question of enforcement, of like ensuring that you know, ethical standards are remain and ensure that they're mm -hmm. also cross-country and cross-border. Mm -hmm. Well, when you operate, I, I've always wanted to ask this question, so I apologize. You're the one that's going to get this question. But you, when you operate in Amboseli, is there a a requirement by photographic operators to provide like a percentage of their revenues back to communities? There, I think a lot of that depends on where you're staying and, and kind of who you're operating with. So like the flat answer is no, but there are the majority of camps that you stay in 
Um, so we use a group called Elephant Garden. We've been we've been going there. Um, I've used the guide Eric ever since I've been going there. He's now subsequently he was a private guide, just himself and his vehicle. He's now been able to open up his own camp. So he's actually annexed it's about four hundred and twenty acres now of, of private conservancy. Um, and so for that reason, we, I've always used Eric's Eric. an uh, African uh, a Kenyan guy. He was a Kenyan, yeah, Local guy. Kumai, he's awesome. A Maasai. Um, awesome. And he, I mean, he is the most phenomenal. Um, elephant guide that I've ever worked with. Um, but when we when we go and stay there, then a percentage of, of our bed night is going back into the into the conservancy of the 420 um, acres that he is he has annexed. Um, no, there is no you know set requirement. Um, but at the same time, you know we what we are doing. Say we come in and we see we see Craig for instance. When we leave, you know Craig's still walking around. Um, so actually the, the the revenue of us going in is going to be repeated over and over and over again to see the, to see the same elephant. Um, so, short answer, no. But I think there's, you know, there is more to it than that. In that, you know, I, I don't know how hunters work and whether they're going to the same place over and over again. But you know, we're taking people to see Craig three, four, five times a year. Um, mm-hmm. So actually, the the constant repeat business, um, I think, Trump's having to kind of put a one off donation in. Yeah, I there's. There's thoughts around numbers and whatnot. Obviously, the the costs of a hunter going in, in terms of the amount of money they're paying, again, it's very different in different places. The only data that I have in terms of comparison is Namibia. And Namibia, it's a 1 to 77 ratio. So the amount of money that one hunter is bringing in is the same as 77 tourists uh, hitting the ground in Namibia. Tanzania and Kenya may be different because of the costs associated with going to Amboseli, right? It's not cheap. And staying in Elephant Gardens probably isn't cheap either. What, what's a bed night in, in Elephant Gardens? Thousand a night? Well, I don't know. Again, varies depending on season, but you know, starting okay. probably 400 in low season, going up to the top end, it's probably a thousand in high season. Um, but on, on that, you know, I agree as well. And there is, there is bad practice and we are obviously seeing as certain areas become more and more popular, you know, you look at the Mara, for instance, and and the foot traffic there is is hectic. Jeez, yeah, um, hectic. And and on that, I can I I I do agree with you in in terms of the facts. Kind of speak for myself. So I wrote my my dissertation. It was a while ago now, but I did write my dissertation on the effects of of trophy hunting on on African uh, wildlife like species population. Um, and that was it was a key kind of consideration in the dissertation was that you look at the the kind of value of, of one hunter versus like you say 77 tourists having to come through or a dollar to 77 dollars um but it, again it kind of it loops back to you know it, what's right for one area isn't isn't say right for another um you know you look at you look at kenya they've banned hunting i can't remember, i can't remember the exact do you know the exact date robbie 1974 um, yeah i mean it's been a while so we, we, we kind of got a 50-year scope to look at um and actually, their population numbers are—you know—they are doing. Can't give it a kind of blanket on, on every species, but they are doing well. You can't put that down to banning hunting at all. But you look at the the revenue generated in Kenya now from tourism; it's it's kind of second or third on its GDP contribution. Yeah, I think you know Kenya has you know the the number that obviously we use as hunters is like, hey, look, look at the the terrible example that Kenya is. Seventy percent of the wildlife has been lost. Yeah. However, when you look at and that's true. I'm not, that's, you, we, that's true. But I'll say this, but when you look at today and the efforts that have happened since 
like the the whole anti the, the poaching crisis that happened in 2010 2011 2012 that you know decimated Tanzanian elephants Kenyan elephant populations are on the rise I speak with I don't know if you I've, I've spoken to actually two other Kenyan photographic guys on this podcast one guy's name is Zarek Zarek Cocker and then I spoke with Calvin Cotter mm-hmm. yeah and um you know, the, the, the efforts that are going into what you're doing, Charlie, what your foundation is doing in terms of like habitat and working with people to say, listen, wildlife is wildlife's a lot more important and a lot more valuable to you versus you think you need to get rid of that impala because it's competing for grass with your goats. There's opportunities here. And that is certainly changing the landscape in Kenya. Um, and yeah, you know, everyone should be in favor of trying to increase habitats for wildlife um i, I let me let me I, i've got a couple of questions number one we i've never used the term super tusker we just use you know 100 pounders is that what you're referring to in terms of your definition of super tuskers yeah very much so there i mean as, as interesting as i was listening to your the other podcast you did as well with um with andrew dankwitz oh yeah, yeah. um and yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, I don't know what that is in, in kilos, about 45 kilos, isn't it? Um, on either yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so. It, along those lines. Um, I think there was an argument it was done visually with, you know, tusks that scrape the ground. Um, but actually you're finding, um, you know, you take an elephant like, um, I think it was Tolstoy, you know, they were having to dart him to, to actually shorten his tusks at points because they were getting stuck in the ground. Um, but no, for, crazy. For what are you? What are your thoughts there? Why would you? Is that not like? Isn't that crazy? Is that? I'm I'm super keen interested. I have no opinion here. I'm like, the intervention of humans to an elephant to cut its tusks. Is it just merely be, because of the revenue generated because of that elephant? I wouldn't know. I mean, I've sadly never got to see the elephant. He he passed away a couple of years ago now, I believe. Um, and again, it's. It's slightly, I mean, it kind of, I'm on the podcast to talk about how another country manages its natural resources, but um, I, w- I would imagine the decision was made. I don't know if it was purely financially, but for the elephant's health as well. Mm. What do you think, Charlie? Well, I think one of the things that needs to be discussed when you're, we're talking about super tuskers, um, and I think two species come under this banner. And I think it's an interesting question. I don't have all the answers here, but I think it's an interesting question to talk about with hunters is when you're talking about elephants and lions, I do think the impact on herd dynamics and pride dynamics needs to be discussed because whether or not you define a super tusker, let's just talk about elephants here as a separate genetic trait. And we've seen, and both Will and I, We'll say this. There are there's there's not particularly there's not a consensus here as to whether it's a genetic variant or whether it's just because they've got to a certain age and they've grown very large tusks. Um, what we do know though is that unlike some herd species, elephants still possess an incredibly important role when they have reached an old age. Uh, male elephants. Um, the wisdom of the herd, they're still reproductive and their passing on of their seed is still a reality. And that's something that usually people will say, well, they've got to an age. I mean, you obviously not 
you don't want to be killing breeding females and things like that. But these older males still have a very important function in an elephant herd. Uh, and with regards to the super tuskers specifically, they've made it to that age and they are passing on their seed. Um, and so I think that ha that is a very important trait. And with lions, that when you talk about pride dynamics, there is more of a case that these are carnivores. If you take out the biggest, most impressive male with a black mane, which an example you pointed out earlier on uh, is the famous one, um, that actually has a lot of cascading impacts on lion prides in those areas, um, whereby lion prides take a while to reform. Sometimes they don't reform. There's conflict. Other lions are killed. Cubs are killed. Uh, when you take out a male lion, there's a cascading set of impacts that occur. Um, and so I think the dynamics of those two species, as it pertains to hunting, is something that really does need to be discussed. I think is at the crux of why I uh, feel like there's a bit of a sort of a need to sort of assess here, because yeah. it's not clear to me that you can say that they function in the same way as, say, a buffalo herd does when you call mm -hmm. a buffalo herd. Mm -hmm. um, there are major differences in some. And so it's not just a question also of saying, well, they're charismatic and everyone loves them. They're the most beautiful species that what everyone comes to see. Even though that is, that does have some truth to it, that has truth to it, especially as a from a tourism perspective. I do also think, though, that there are biological factors here that, that have to be hashed out. Yeah, you know, and I, I don't disagree with you. I think that, you know, looking at the science, I'm a scientist, I'm a restoration ecologist. So I love science. I love, I let science sort of, and then let the science drive the pragmatism thereafter. So the science says, you're right, the Ampicelli work that Poole has done and Holly Ratcliffe has done, Hollister, sorry, Hollister has done, says that reproductive success in those herds, specifically in Ampicelli, increases through time. They increase must, they increase the reproductive success the older and older and older they get. And then there is a moderate, moderate decline in the last couple of years of life in, on the science in terms of that reproductive success. It doesn't mean that it's not still successful. It just means that there is a moderate decline. The genetic argument for Tuskers may or may not be true. We don't know. That comes down to looking at it. But the only data set that I know of that correlates anything to do with Tusk size and length and mass is the Ian White and Anthony Hall Martin data set out of Kruger National Park, which is the culling data set of 1,600 elephants that correlates mass and length with age. So it's, I think we're all on the agreement that as old elephants get older and older and older, they get bigger and bigger tusks and longer tusks. Now, you throw in a genetic argument in that, then yes, it, there's the potential to have really big tusks um, with that sort of playing a role or, or sort of um, the correlation, causation, not causation, but correlation between those elements. My, my standpoint here is, okay, if, if from a hunting perspective, if you're saying, okay, what, what elephants should we hunt? If hunting is something that we agree on, not, not three of us, but let's just say we agree we're going to hunt elephants writ large in this one area. Which elephants should we hunt? If you're going to take out five elephants, which elephants should you hunt? Well, 
uh, somebody who pays for the elephant is going to want the largest elephant they possibly can get. Well, that means an old elephant. An old elephant, based on the data, suggests that they've had good reproductive opportunities since they've been breeding, hopefully since they've been 35. They're getting better and better and better and better and better at it. So hopefully you're taking out an elephant that is big tusk at the last years of its life. 51, 52, 53. And in that regard, you're putting as much genetic material back into the population. And yes, we're sacrificing however many years that elephant was left to live. That's an assumption. One, two, three, five, maybe. Um, so from a hunting perspective, that's, that's the argument. Um, that you, you are trying to take the, the largest animals that just happen to be the oldest, but that have also had the most opportunity to put back the genetic material that have made them, if you believe in the genetic argument, have made them the big tuskets. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, and I'll let Will go in a second as well. I think that, I take what you're saying. I mean, I think we already answered it in some ways about 20 minutes ago when we talked about there needing to be an accountancy done on the benefits of certain populations of elephants to certain areas like Manipools and Amboset, yeah. where people are actually paying an extraordinarily high amount of money to see these elephants, and that is repeated again and again and again. And that's bringing a lot to communities, especially now that, I mean, Will can talk much more about the, 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 the sort of ecotourism side, but from the conservation side, when you have organizations that are doing community conservation in these areas, we support, that are protecting these wild, these, these, these animals and are also showing to local communities in these areas that this is something you should take pride in, having this animal here with this massive tusk. It's a symbol of your community, protect it. And I think that's being done as a response to trying to, uh, really it's actually for a rhino perspective because it ensures that the community is your first line of defense against poachers. Um, they see the rhino as something that's part of their community. And, that, and if anyone comes in and they look like they're outsiders who might be looking to poach the rhino, the community right. becomes your first line of defense. That's where that argument comes from and it's a strong one. Um, so I think there needs to be regulations and then you get to the question of like well are these regulations going to be followed in an inherently in a, in a business that's competitive where you're inherently wanting to get the best the biggest the best the most impressive that's yeah. a key question to answer yeah. and i think this this obviously focuses on elephants but with lions it's even more difficult because then you want to take the biggest the most impressive but then that does because they're carnivores create cascading impacts on the price yeah. Most famously in, in, in and around Wangi. Um, and I've had the privilege of being to Wangi and spending time with prides there. And Cecil's pride took many, many, many years to actually recover from that. And they lost many cup cubs during this process. They've still, the lion dynamics are there, are change, ever changing until a dominant set of coalition of males or male takes over. And so, you then get to that tricky question of, I mean, I see where you're coming from, but there are lots of, there's lots of issues and then enforcement's one of them. I mean, Wangi was a situation where also there was a similar accusation of what was happening in uh, Endemet, which is that people were actually baiting 
these lines across the trap, the train line into the hunting concession from Wangi, which again is very unethical. So how do you police that unethical behavior so that that theoretical, that theoretical uh, paradigm of taking the correct elephant or the correct, you know, uh, species is actually followed? It, it, it seems like in reality, it's quite difficult. And so then you get to questions of like, is this the correct form of use of this land for communities as well as for, you know, <laughs> the people, the, and the communities are really what matters in these areas. <laughs> you know, it's the money coming into those areas. Is it the correct use for them? <laughs> well, yeah, I think so spe specifically to go back to, to what you were saying about, okay, so you're looking at what, what elephants should could be hunted um and you're saying right so elephant gets to say 52 53 it's kind of had that chance to to pass on the genetics we we all know um elephants their tusks grow more in the last 10 years than they than they will in in the previous 30 40 so these guys are, are growing more and more as they get older um if we compare say craig and amicelli to these two that have, have um been shot in Tanzania. So we know there that for whatever reason, the carcasses were burnt, so that the meat side of it is, is irrelevant. So it's a purely kind of financial um, benefit, this hunt. Um, if you look at Craig, for instance, and you applied that logic and go, well, Craig's now already 51, 52. So he, you might say he's kind of in an age range where he might be considered one of the ones to shoot. We could say, okay, he's had his chance. He's passed on his genes to X, Y, and Z. You know, he's, he's now kind of game to be hunted. He, because of what he's become in the last three or four years, his real value to the community has has boomed in the last three or four years. I mean, I probably spent personally between thirty and forty thousand dollars going to photograph in the last four years. We've had equal of that from clients, and that's that's just for us. So you then think about how much it's bringing in three hundred and sixty-five days a year compared to the hunting permit and i know we then get back into that that ground of okay well it's the bigger carbon footprint it's the biggest human footprint but you look at the value craig is having to that community now in in the kind of twilight of his life it is massive compared to what it would have been hey. 10 years ago so it then gets us into that kind of really hazy ground of okay well if we're trying to uh win, obviously the three of us are not going to reach a conclusion about what the right thing to do for hunting is across all of africa in, a, in an hour and 20 minutes on the but if we're trying to then... Why not, Will? This, Come on. Sorry, I'll dream big, dream big. Um, but if we're trying to find some kind of sustainable solution here and go, okay, so what makes one elephant acceptable to hunt and what makes one not? Because first, there's a, there's a whole moral conversation there. Um, but you've then got to start looking at things like, okay, well, if we take that guy, say you put a cutoff and you go, okay, you can only shoot at an 80-pound or a 70-pound. Now, if a, if a hunter be it guest or the hunter themselves as a true conservationist and they know the reason for that is we have to leave these bigger guys then they should go fine i get the argument for that i'm a conservationist therefore i i stick by those rules but where do we start to draw a line and go well these elephants are fair for hunters these ones are not and kind of going back to your point robbie if we go okay well we know that these ones uh can be hunted and these ones can't would you would you hand on heart say that you would expect the industry to abide by that would you not say there's the odd bad apple that would that would take the chance and that would go over something that's been marked as off the cards um you know I, I i would not speak for the whole photographic industry and say i know that they all act in a way they should act around these super tuskers in the same way that i don't know if you would feel comfortable saying while you 100 would put these rules in place and you would follow them 
do you honestly believe that the whole industry would do the same thing? Yeah, I think to your point, I think there's bad apples in every industry, right? And there's there's bad apples in ecotourism, and they, they do things that they shouldn't be doing. And unfortunately, we have the same thing. Um, not saying that that occurred in this scenario, because again, we don't know the ifs around the helicopter. No, and, and, and nor am I, just to be yeah, clear. Yeah, yeah, 100%, 100%. Um, I think the critical point here is, and I think one of the the, the criticisms, Charlie, and, and I'd like Will's response here, the criticism from the money perspective that I've heard around Amboseli is that, yes, it's generating a lot of money, but how much is actually reaching the community versus not? Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, I would, I would put the same to, um, you know, the hunting industry as well. You know, I, there are... It's the same in both industries. You know, you have the good eggs and you have bad eggs. Yep. Um, you know, you can stay at lodges that that don't, you know, put their put their ten cents back in, and you can stay at lodges that go above and beyond. Um, it's kind of down to you as an operator going into that area to go, well, okay, these are the people that I want to work with. Um, you know, you look at so you wait. What you've got is you've got Amboseli, and then you've got all the adjoining conservancies, and then you've got wildlife corridors that take it over to kind of the commander sanctuary. Um, and the Shulu Hills. And actually in that area, you have an enormous Shiva population. And it's, as we kind of touched on earlier, it is booming, you know, massively. And so you are seeing an increase in Shiva wildlife conflict. And you've got groups like Big Life, you've got groups like the Amoseli Trust down there doing everything they can. But ultimately, we know we are in a in a sad situation where it's, it's slightly becoming a what pace days. Um, and so there are community members that will go, I'm sorry, this is an elephant. It, it, Come through the fence, tramples my crops, eats my livelihood. It's of no monetary value to me. But you're also getting guys like we use a we use a master tracker called David. He's now pretty much out 24/7 every day. He's used by other lodges and other camps to find his elephants. Um, there is that kind of. I, I'd love to better sit here and tell you the exact figures of how much money is going back into the. But I can't. You know, it, we're we're in a we're in a land where people can take their chance and go. Well, I'm going to put a lodge there and I'll just I'll just mm-hmm. break this elephant's mm-hmm. crap. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we make a real um, effort with our guests. So the the Amboseli Trust, they have their headquarters in the middle of the park. We took some guests there on our last trip. Um, the Trust really opened their doors for us. You know, they've got an amazing monitoring team there. We learned all about that setup, and the guys straight away were like, okay, well, I'll put my hand in my pocket. I'll donate to you guys. Um, I appreciate that's the conservation side. That's not the community side, and it's, you know, it's it's sexier, let's be honest, to donate to the conservation side than it is to go into the community side of it. Um, but Again, it just comes down to the operator and their willingness to go, okay, well, I, I want to stay at the places that are doing this. And I'd love to be able to say everyone does that, but the fact is they don't. Yeah, well said, Will. Charlie? I can't talk so much to the tourism side of the ledger since I don't have as much of an insight as Will does to tourism operators. I'm going to have my own personal experience, but that doesn't really, that's just lived experience. From the conservation side of things, though, I think one of the things that has been happening and it's been increasing is the donation from or the percentage given from tourism ventures and camps to organizations uh, whenever they visit areas um, that um, are that money is going into community conservation initiatives. Now, I would love more to go in. I'd like a higher percentage would be great. For, from from many tourism operators to go to organizations who are doing fantastic community work um, in all of the areas of Africa that that we that we focus on 
Um, I mean, obviously, Will mentioned Big Life in Amboseli and Amboseli Trust, and uh, you know, th- those are those are great organizations that they they do receive certain amounts of money from uh, tourism. Um, I do think, though, that con- from conservation perspective, it's still a model that's highly reliant on donors and donations. Um, that's essentially what brings in the, the vast majority of its funding. And I can just speak from that respect, saying that I think that in those instances, um, the money that is coming in is, is increasingly very good in that it is going towards communities because there are so many very community-orientated conservation outfits now operating in Africa that are not the con- not your not your grandfather's conservation outfits that essentially weren't providing uh, very much into, at all right. to communities, but now yeah. are actually at the tip of helping communities and not just doing token things either that will help them for a small period of time, but actually building sustainable economies, uh, allowing a certain amount of, of, you know, in buffer zones, a certain amount of, of things like fishing and things that help communities, but also show them the value of the core areas for wildlife and preservation of these species. And in terms of the species themselves, you know, the community seeing value in the protection of these species is something that's very important. And I think that ultimately the battle in many ways is against, it is against poaching, um, you, you know, and, and it's, but it's ultimately against loss of land. And I think that's how I see it. Um, I do think, though, in this particular region, the Amboseli Salvo uh, ecosystem the symbols of that area are indeed the super tuskers, like the symbols of Rwanda's conservation effort are mountain gorillas. Um, uh, and so I think that it is inherently wrapped up in whether that paradigm can continue with conservation, having the funds to then protect the area and the land and benefit the communities, in many ways rests on the uh, continuation of these species and the, the continued viewing of these species. I think a lot of conservation outfits, and I know this from being in, deep into it, they connect to people who maybe aren't very knowledgeable about conservation by showing species, making them very species orientated. When in reality, what they're doing is they're protecting the landscape and the biodiversity and uh, the community and, and, and benefiting the communities. But I do think, as ambassadors for that conservation, charismatic species such as the big tusker, the, you know, the, the tuskers of Amboseli, the mountain gorillas of Rwanda, um, the, the you know, lions in a number of areas across Africa are sort of the, the benchmark in terms of allowing money to flow in. And I think that's really an important thing for conservation. Yeah, look, I think all of the things that we've said, though we may not be on the same page when it comes to like the exact elephants to be hunted or where the elephants should be hunted, period. Um, I think we are all on the same page in that we we know there are massive challenges in front of us when it comes to wildlife around the world, conservation of wildlife around the world. And to your point, Charlie, I think the key core piece of having sustained wildlife is to have habitat available and protected for it to be able to do what it's supposed to do, maximize its biodiversity in those habitats. We have a booming human population that is expressing a bunch of pressure on those habitats and that wildlife. And to your point, Will, 
it is it is imperative that the community feels like they are benefiting from the wildlife that are around them in such a way that they value it staying around um, for the future. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think our differences are ones that come about with regardless of personal preferences, whether, you know, we like to shoot with a weapon, with a gun or with a, with a camera. I think that's kind of irrelevant to the discussion in many ways. I mean, obviously we have our personal preferences, but I think the differences come about with how do we actually in reality, not just in the theoretical world, enforce standards and regulations? And is it possible to enforce standards and regulations? Um, and, you know, and I'd become disillusioned, not just in hunting, because I have come disillusioned with trophy hunting, whether it's been, is actually able to do that. I've also become disillusioned with some mass, with mass tourism that we'll yeah. be able to, to do with that too, where every new, uh, every new lodge is just more income. And can you, can you draw, can you pull back that once you started to continuously build more and more camps and put more and more people and cars into an area? Um, so I think that's potentially one area of difference. And then you know, the other area is, I, I do think it comes back to questioning some of the science around dynamics of herds and prides. Um, and whether there is something there and whether it's the best use of land to, you know, do hunting versus tourism um, in certain areas. And I think the biggest crux is, is the, of the issue is this, this instance that set us all ablaze in, Ambos- in, 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 in Tanzania and around Amboseli. It sounds like we're sort of on the same page and we're still asking for answers here. But I mean, I think we were all a bit enraged because it's not a good example um of of sustainable anything um and i think that's sort of where we we have our sort of similarities and differences in many ways yeah i think the you know the 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 detail that we're on the same page in and you know it would be flagrant from a, a journalism perspective if it was false if a helicopter was used that's just ridiculous absolutely ridiculous uh, to push an animal into an area. Um, and I agree, I think all hunters should be, you know, looking at that going, what the hell are we doing? Uh, that's not hunting at the end of the day from a, an ethos of hunting. Will, last words? I don't think so, really. I think um, kind of touching on that, though, so say, say it comes out that the helicopter was used, um, would would you expect to to see a reaction from the hunting community like there has been from the say the anti hunting community on this issue? So the anti hunting community, regardless of the means of of hunting it, are just going this is this is wrong. End of. Would you expect that if if it turned out that a helicopter had been used and it was it was poor practice, would you expect there to be any kind of pushback from your hunting community, or do you think it would just be a case of people going, well, I don't really agree with that and move on? Would you? One of the big things I wrote about in my in my dissertation was that occasionally the industry's biggest enemy is itself, right? You know, yeah. it is trophy hunting. It is the need to push for the biggest things. And then once you've once you've hunted the trophy, you want to be able to talk about the fact that you've hunted the trophy. Yeah. That is obviously going to cause backlash. And now the world we live in, it's only going to become more and more polarized and the nuances do get lost. Um but would you would you expect the industry to to regulate itself in matters like this to go i'm sorry that's too far and we as an industry want to speak up about it because at least that way 
it might attract more people to see more of the middle ground in this argument. If the, if the facts were true and verified that a helicopter was used, I can almost guarantee that the organization representing hunting in that specific country, like to be specific, in that specific country would come out against that behavior. But would, there, would, would anything then come off that moving forward? Would there be a case of you guys going, okay, well, look, we, there needs to be reform to this. Like, I do feel there is very much a kind of... Um, well, I think that's number one. I think it's illegal. I, I, I don't know if it's written down or not. But again, that, that sort of rolls into the whole, like, that's a, then rolls into government and regulations and, you know, things like that. You know, I would hope that the, if it came true, that, that it came to light, that the thing was, that that was absolutely true. You know, I would say that's un- unacceptable behavior. I can't speak for other organizations. Would they say that they would say something about it? You know, I don't know. I would hope so. Um, you know, it would, would, I'll, not to deflect, but I, I, I can't answer for everybody else, right? But Charlie, we've talked about the ecotourism side of things. Like if something really unethical happens in the ecotourism operator side, would they, would the same thing happen there? Or would they be like, ah, that's not really right. And just no, move on well, kind of thing. Good question. And I think that maybe they wouldn't do it on their own, but as Will stated, the backlash on that side even for things like crowding at the Mara River and the Mara is quite, is great. And so whether or not actions actually occur, they, they have been occurring, but I think that there, there's such a pushback against that, that there are sort of things put in place. I mean, because I think that, or at least there's, there's enough of pressure to get something changed when there is something very egregious happening. On an ecotourism side, although I do I agree with what you're saying, more needs to be done. But I find sometimes with hunting that there's a mentality that because it seems like you guys are on the back foot, whether mm. that's perception or reality, I, I don't know. That is like, well, we we can't. We're already sort of on the you know we're on the defensive, so let's just not yeah, say yeah, yeah. this. And yeah, that's yeah. a problem. No, you're 100 percent right. Hunting is in like I use this analogy all the time. It may not be PQ, uh, PC, <laughs> not PQ, PC, but like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if, if you were, if you were gay, you didn't let anybody know you're in the closet kind of thing. Right. And that's why that's, that sort of phraseology was used. But today, if you're gay, you're proud about it. And that's good. Hunting, unfortunately, has gone in the reverse. Hunting is now in a closet. And the only time you come out of the closet is when something bad happens or something that you want to, you know, kick. somebody opens the closet door and punches you in the nose and you come kicking and screaming out the door. And then when everything quietens down, you slowly retreat back into your closet and close the door. Um, you're absolutely right. That, and, and hunting, what from my perspective, from a blood origins perspective, I feel like the narrative that we should be leading coming out of the closet and open the doors. Here we are. Here are the impacts of hunting to people, to wildlife, to communities all around the world. It's a great message. Does it work in every single community, in every single habitat? No. 
Does it, does it work in a lot of places? Yes. Here's why. Yeah. And I just think, I think on that, it's, it's a bit like Charlie was saying, I feel too often the, the kind of narrative is, is justification based on the back of backlash as opposed, I mean, I know your channel is very different and Blood Origins is very much trying to focus on the positives. And I, and I think sort of comparing it to the photographic industry, if I look at say the Mara, for instance, and you look at traffic there and, and what it's done to specifically like cheetah mortality rates and with their with their cups it's bad it's really not good and but there is an open dialogue about it i think largely because there are so many of us there it's very visible as a as a practice so you can't you can't really get away with the bad behavior and there's enough people that care enough to to shut it down and go we've seen so-and-so doing this um or we've actually seen a picture from the sighting they clearly behave badly to get that shot and there's a there's a pretty quick backlash to it, so it's quite self-regulating in that respect. Now there that there, there could be more <laughs> that I'm, I'm very um, aware of, but what would I think be quite useful from a kind of a hunting perspective would be to actually see hunters, and it goes back to what we just talked about, saying actually we in this case these guys are wrong, and I think a lot of the time it's kind of the hunting community speaking as an entire community and yeah. going no, we're, we're sticking up for all of ourselves here, which I understand, but I think what would what would be beneficial if we're trying to get people more open to protecting these areas and kind of using any means necessary um, is is to be able to have that dialogue and go, actually, no, I'm sorry, these guys, if if this is true, have got it really wrong and we as a community, we don't stand by that. And actually, we want to be doing this, this, and this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a distrust. There's a distrust there, I think, between groups, and that's a problem. And, you know, as much as we might, after having many conversations with you and having this conversation with you, trust you, we, how can we say we trust the people who killed these super tuskers when they have gone black? They've gone dark. They've, they've, uh, they're not saying whether they used a helicopter. They're not saying what they did and where and what, where they come from. And I understand they don't want the exposure, but it's the same thing. It's, it's, it's not going to build trust when you do that, right? It's kind of going to make people question, wait, something untowards, something bad's happened here. Yeah, you're right. Charlie, Will, um, my door's always open. DM, like those. Um, yep. podcast, chat to me. Um, I really, really appreciate your time. Um, I, I can appreciate when I made the request, um, the potential um, trepidation of coming on something like this and it being an absolute screaming match. Um, yeah. And... Uh, I knew it wasn't going to be that way. And I love, love, love these kinds of conversations. So very much look forward to it. Will, maybe one day I can bring my family to um, Ambacilli and get those, those photographic shots. I only use a Leica with like a 25 mil prime though. So I may That's be in trouble. I use Robbie. I don't take Oh, much. look at the, I, I didn't know I was a professional. Wide angle stuff. Um, and actually on that as well, probably a general apology to people that have sat through an hour and 20 minutes hoping for a slanging match at some point. And <laughs> been and gone, oh, that was, that was actually quite calm. Um, so to those guys that were keen for an argument, um, maybe we'll tee one up next time. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Probably not there. No, I appreciate you too. Thank you so much. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Yeah, as well. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Try to be
pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. You'd think, with four of us spread out on a tiny island, that the task of tagging a whitetail would not be a big thing. But, as I've learned, no matter where I've been, whitetails can be damn tricky. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.